Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses online and in person. So they are all online at the moment. Check them out at tkex.org. We've got a self-paced one-day BPS course, and we've got our lower back and our neck and shoulder course up there online. So that's a live online course. I'm here today with the famous Lars Avermarie. He is a very prominent writer. He is all up in the pain science research. He is a critical thinker, mega extraordinaire. I was going to say guru, but there are some negative connotations with that word. So <laughs> we'll keep that one out for, for today. But I've been following him for a while. Really, really appreciate and value his, his work, his contributions to the field. So keen to dive into some topics today with you, mate. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's an absolute yeah. pleasure. So yeah. Lars, the, the first question, the famous question, what is your story? Yeah. So this could take like 60 minutes or 90 <laughs> minutes in it all. But basically, I tried to do a short summary in, in my notes here. So basically, I I'm actually educated uh, as a graphic designer and have worked uh, for several years professionally with graphic design in an ad agency. So that is actually my background. Then in around 2003, 2004, uh, there were a financial crisis in uh, Scandinavia, but I think it was actually globally, but it hit Denmark really hard where I was living. Uh, now I'm living in Sweden, but, uh, but I am from Denmark and I am a Dane, uh, but I live in Sweden right now. But there were a big financial crisis and it hit Denmark quite hard. And um, a lot of um, the graphic design industry or field were hit uh, very hard. So uh, sadly, I had to look for other job op opportunities. Uh, and uh, the following years I worked uh, as a freelance graphic designer, but I knew I had to do something because most likely I would not be able to find a job in the near future. So I started looking around and then uh, I've always been training and exercising. So I've almost done all sports uh, that there are, like uh, badminton, tennis, football, soccer, soccer. Uh, swimming, um, martial arts is uh, one of the things I've done for a long time. I did have a martial arts um, school with a friend for someone like nine years. Um, well, so I've done almost everything. Uh, so I thought, why not just make my, um, my hobby or my lifestyle into my work? So I did a transition over to the fitness industry. And from 2006 to 2014, I worked full-time in the fitness industry uh, and got educated as a fitness instructor and a personal trainer, but also worked as a receptionist, um, a self-employed personal trainer, and even a mid-level gym manager for one of the biggest, uh, the biggest chain in Denmark at the moment when I worked there. It had over 100,000 members and had, I think it were 38 branches locally in Denmark. Um, 
And then I got uh, as a personal trainer, uh, especially when I worked as a self-employed personal trainer in Sweden, I got a lot of people with uh, injuries or and or chronic pain. And uh, the system in Denmark and in Sweden is most uh, is often that you get uh, part of the fee for physiotherapy you get paid by by the state, and a part you have to pay uh, for yourself. But it's often not unlimited, meaning that uh, you can't just get physiotherapy and the state will pay uh, indefinitely. Uh, at some point, you uh, you will lose this uh, this um, reimbursement by the state. So many people they do physiotherapy and then then at some point when they have to pay hundred percent themselves, they can't afford and then they are often advised to join a gym to keep active and then they often ended up on my table and then i began to ask a lot of questions and read articles because i had no uh, prior knowledge and experience with the people with the injuries low back pain and um, and and other types of uh, injuries and then I got in contact with some colleagues and started asking them for uh, scientific articles and articles and got uh, even more. Um, I, I, I think I annoyed them with all my questions because every article would, uh, would lead to four more questions and then one will ask. And then I started to read uh, research articles. And it was actually only after doing this for five or six years that I actually applied for physiotherapy school, uh, where I was, um, where I started in 2014. And uh, right now I work, um, work as a physio full time. And of course do lectures by the side and do podcasts and um, yeah. What is, what uh, and doing? very active on um, social media. Yes. And yeah. And it's a incredible journey from graphic design to fitness to now yeah. healthcare in general. Yeah. Do you do you feel that there was a bit of a transition with the fitness world and healthcare? I feel like there's so many parallels with with those two worlds, with the training and the rehab world. I'm sure that there was a uh, some parallels for you yeah. with that transition. There's a lot of parallels. So um, basically, the the contact you have with a client. Um, actually, I found the personal training education and the experience as a personal training uh, personal trainer very valuable in getting uh, good uh, teaching and getting experience in having um, a good connection with the client or patient. In our case, so there's a lot of parallels there, and actually. Uh, I'm the admin of uh, the biggest uh, physiotherapy uh, Facebook group in Denmark. And there was a long thread on there where one young uh, physiotherapy student asked if, if he wanted to work as a personal trainer, if he, uh, it was advisable that he actually had the personal trainer education. And uh, there was a lot of... Um, different opinions about that but but i would say yes there's a lot um, that you learn as a personal trainer that you actually do not learn at the university 
I imagine that was a bit of a debate there. On that yeah, one. it was a bit of a debate. So basically, uh, a lot of physios feel that because we know a lot more about anatomy and physiology and we have a um, university degree, then, uh, then of course we should be uh, sufficiently in personal training. But exercise prescription um, and uh, good principles founded in strength training and the good connection uh, with you have with the client and um, coaching and guidance in the, in the prescribed uh, exercise is actually something that the physiotherapy school is lacking or were lacking when I, I took the education. So basically how you get people to do a proper squat and how you coach the squat and even how you show and demonstrate the squat is really not, um, there's not a lot of uh, time spent on doing that in physiotherapy school, which is actually a shame in my view. 100% with you there, Lars. It's, there's parallels to our system here in Australia. Even with my exercise physiology degree, I can recall maybe a maximum of three sessions that we were in a gym coaching movement. So that's definitely yeah. a, the practical component of exercise prescription of coaching and like you said building rapport with a fellow human yeah person person skills are so valuable yeah. yeah i'm keen to hear with that transition period and and with your body of knowledge now how what does clinical practice now as a as a physio look like for you um so uh, i work what we could call sub-regional rehabilitation uh, and I know that the system in Denmark and Sweden is somewhat similar, similar, but I think it's very different from what I have heard uh, from other countries. So basically in uh, Sweden, the system is made up of three um, uh, self-imposing or self-recognized um, self units, meaning that there's the hospitals, who have the responsibility for themselves. Then there's the sub-government or multiplicity, which have the responsibility for what they do themselves. And then we have like a, a sub-hospital or a governmentally run health center. So they can do like tests and they can do small stuff, but if you have to have an operation or some major complication, then you go to the big hospital. Um, and often the, the sub-hospitals or mini-hospitals are locally based, where the big hospitals are regional based. So those three are like in um, co-workmanship together. And I work in one of those, which means that I basically do not uh, work under guidance of a doctor. I get referrals from doctors, but actually I'm actually my own king in the country or my country or the part of the country, could you say? Um, and I see a wide range um, of patients. Um, most of the, um, um, most at the second part of their life, so older patients, uh, and a lot of them have chronic diseases, multiple chronic diseases, 
But then I also see people with uh, standard fractures, like uh, a hip fracture, a foot fracture, fracture of the pelvis, or um, humerus fracture. And some have, of them have also have chronic pain. And most of them have um, several functional or physical disabilities. Um, so um, the way it's set up, uh, and one thing I like about my clinical practice is so I, per definition, I never see somebody only with chronic pain. They will always have something more like multiple diseases and then pain or multiple functional disabilities or physical disabilities and pain. But occasionally I will see, also see the standard hip fracture or shoulder fracture. So both the acute presentations as well as the persisting or chronic presentations yeah. and amongst yeah. mostly you'd say people from the ages of 50 and above. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, a large percentage of them are, are with multiple chronic diseases. That were like problems with blood pressure, diabetes, stuff like that. Interesting. And sclerosis and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's so many overlaps with, with just this systemic disease in, in, in general and chronic pain. So I'm curious as to your approach. Is there a difference between your approach with someone, say, with uh, persisting chronic conditions versus an acute presentation of, of, of pain? How, how would you kind of approach so basically, in my course, I teach a framework which uh, is in part um, I've learned from uh, Dr. Jonathan Silvernail, which means uh, we have some in any given uh, therapeutic uh, consultation, uh, I will have um, the first primary goal for me as a clinician would be to gain a solid uh, foundation in uh, or gain a good therapeutic alliance with the patient. That, that takes precedence to anything else. I will not prescribe uh, any exercise or any rehabilitation um, exercise before I have gained a good solid uh, therapeutic alliance with the patient. Uh, so that's like the first step. And then it's like um, trying to make them calm like trying and trying to explain to them, then look for potential modifiable factors in their experience. And then if there are like severe sleep problems, then look at that. If there's uh, catastrophizing thoughts, then uh, try to uh, manipulate those. If there's uncertainty, try to manipulate that. Um, so basically looking at the person from a, and I hate the word holistic, but basically looking at the person from a holistic view. So basically looking at any, any patient repetition, any patient um, from a biopsychosocial view. Um, yeah. Yeah, looking at the whole picture, right, and the, yeah. their lifestyle and other perhaps contributing factors that could be yeah. playing a part in their experience yeah. versus yeah. just the tissue. Yeah. Awesome. And exactly. it sounds like it's, that's the same approach for, for every human that walks in. 
Yeah. So basically, even if it's not chronic pain but acute pain, then the presentation can still be very much variable, variable in in even if the it is the same um, like knee pain or hip fracture or what. So basically, if you have a a hip fracture and a hip surgery. Um, and then you can have one person who is actually functional and walking again after a month. And then you can have somebody who takes two, three months. And it's the same, um, yeah, same um, operation. They went through the same thing uh, in, in general. But their, so approach, their approach to rehabilitation, their motivation, the the baggage they have with them before the injury is different um, and they need a different approach. So I'm not very fond of getting questions at my courses or online where it's the sole focus is the pain location. Like what do you do with a person with knee, with the knee pain? What do you do with a person with the yeah, foot pain? What do you do with a person with low back pain? There's so much more to a person than the pain location. Um, and I think even Adam Meekins, he shared a, a paper which actually found that the pain location is not really that important in the treatment. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, the crux of it. We, we perhaps get taught a few formulas and systemized ways of treating certain conditions or specific diagnoses through university. I'm not too sure what the, your education system was like, but I know over here, we definitely have that approach where it becomes very much a biomedical fix the problem according to the condition and the diagnosis. So yeah, it makes yeah. sense that people are asking those questions. Yeah. Uh, ben Cormack says that it's most likely better to treat a person with a diagnosis than the diagnosis itself or something like that which I fully believe. So this talk you hear about oh, in my clinical practice training, I did um, training at the hospital, uh, but also in the clinic. And often it's like, well, your 12 o'clock low back patient is here, or your hip is here, or your, your foot fracture is here. Well, that's not really that good a way, in my view, of thinking about it. It should be more that your patient uh, or the, uh, the human being that you're supposed to treat is here and his name is Paul or John or whatever. So it's not only a location. And also a point I make in my, um, in my course um, is that that Pain uh, has what is called what uh, Professor Peter calls uh, degeneracy, meaning that that even if the pain location is the same, there can be radical different uh, representations of that pain. So a person who has low back pain could differ widely from another person with low back pain. It, it's it's and it's funny how even the same as you mentioned the same diagnosis same condition same mechanism of injury even same age 
of a patient, a client comes in with, and then their recovery is completely different to someone with yeah. the exact same presentation. It's crazy. Yeah. And I, I heard like, there was, uh, sorry, go on, go for it. Um, like um, if a person um, has, uh, are doing some gardening work, now it's summer, so the garden has to be uh, in uh, great shape. So they do gardening work and then they get low back pain. Then of course they, after a couple of days, they get worried and they go to the physio. Or there's the, the guy working at the office and, and um, he's very stressed and he gets low back pain and he starts wondering, oh no, this might be low back pain like my dad did before he had, uh, was diagnosed with uh, a tumor in the back. So those two uh, beliefs and the meaning behind the pain will be radical different from the one person who did a bit of gardening work and the other person who actually is, is worried that he actually got the same cancer as his dad got. That's it. So the impact of someone's previous experiences can change their approach to symptoms, yeah. their meaning their perception yeah. of their diagnosis. Yeah. And, and as, mostly, as mostly says, the, one of the most modifiable factors we have with God, regarding pain is the meaning of the pain. And there I think, especially physios or chiropractors um, have done a, a, what could I say, tremendous, um, in Denmark, it's called bear favor. It's a favor that's not good, that actually leads to something bad. They often do their patients a bear favor, meaning that, that actually they want so much to explain why people have pain, because people often want to know why they have pain. But then we teach them a lot about anatomy and structure and stuff like that. And then they actually totally get uncertain and get very frightened by what we are saying. Because in most cases, they do not have a new university degree. And they, they don't know, they, all they hear is a lot of mumbo jumbo talk, which creates uncertainty. And that can lead to uh, fear. Yeah, so the art urge to fill in the gaps and provide an answer to someone could actually be perpetuating the problem. Yeah. And I love that term. It was like a favor that you'd never really wanted, or it's a favor that has yeah. negative consequences. Yeah. It's like, um, often what we are doing to the patient or, uh, in our, in our focus with explaining, we do them a bare favor, or it's like peeing your pants if you want to get warm. Yeah, well, you get warm in, in, in the short term, but you really do not get warm in long term. It's not really good. That's one of the best analogies I've ever heard for, for the passive therapies that, that, that are out there. So I'm going to steal that one last. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm keen to, to touch on, in terms of clinical practice, your approach there's lots of kind of debates online on the passive and active approaches to clinical practice what's what's your take on on say that that the kind of the symptom modification 
approach for pain? So because I work at the government or sub-government rehabilitation, my, my measures or my modalities is um, severely limited, meaning that I can't actually do manual therapy. Uh, all my exercises are home-based. So that's, that's a difference between Sweden and Denmark. In uh, Denmark, you often have rehabilitation centers with exercise equipment um, and uh, like leg presses and stuff like that, machines. But uh, here in Sweden and the region where I'm um, in, it's home-based. Everything is home-based. So actually, I do not have anything that I could... I can't have my patients lie on the floor while I do trigger point on them. And then, of course, it's also uh, severely limited um, in part by what I can do uh, from a um, not law but rule perspective, meaning that I can't do acupuncture, I can't do dry needling, I can't do manual therapy. And most of the cases, it's uh, so that actually leads to most likely a very, very active approach uh, and very goal oriented. So if if you can't do this, then we should try to find a path so you as quickly and as effectively and efficiently get to that goal. That could be walking again after a hip fracture. Very interesting how the, this, your environment, your context already nudges some of your behaviors, your clinical practice. So, so fascinating. Yeah. And we see the opposite effect where we can have people in a different context and environment where all their colleagues are practicing in a certain way, where their performance, their outcome measures are measured in purely pain relief or patient satisfaction, and then their behaviors can be nudged in a different direction. So that's really fascinating yeah. how your environment yeah. can, can dictate how we practice. A caveat here is that I work, uh, we work in teams, meaning that I usually work together with an occupational therapist. So every patient, some, some if the patient calls and they have uh, like, um, there's a severe risk of falls, then it's my table, then I will go out. But if it's a hip fracture and they come home from the hospital, then both an occupational therapist and a physiotherapist will, uh, will be there to meet them when they get home. So an occupational therapist, they often take a much more forward and activity-based approach, which I feel uh, physios could learn a lot from. Absolutely. Absolutely. We yeah. can learn from the, the contextual graded exposure that they would do and the very much activity task-based approach. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. wanted to, and, to move on yes. quickly, Lars, to, to the... The other thing that you are very prominent and, and well-known in pointing out the talks of cognitive biases, of logical fallacies, of, of critical thinking, some of the principles of, of critical thinking that perhaps aren't taught enough in university. So I wanted to, to dive into what are some of the 
the key principles when it comes to critical thinking? Yeah, so, so basically, as, from my understanding of the critical thinking literature and textbooks, there's no like firm, there's not like 12 principles or laws of critical thinking. Uh, but I did, when I did my talk at the Paint Cloud back in 2018, I talked about two rules of critical thinking club, like the two rules of the fight club, then we could have two rules of um, critical thinking club. And the first rule of critical thinking club is you do not automatically assume that people are logical reasoning individuals. So this is actually one of the biggest myths in thinking or critical thinking. Basically all good thinking are to some degree or high quality thinking is critical. Um, and the myth is that actually we believe that people and us are uh, logical. We are not. We are highly emotional creatures and highly illogical. So that is the first rule. And the second rule is that you should not, the second rule of critical thinking club is that you should not automatically assume that you are a logical reasoning individual because you are not. Um, and again, you are also like others, a very emotional being. Yeah. So the, view, the way I view it is that uh, critical thinking is a, a field of different parts. So um, critical thinking is knowledge about um, argumentative theory, so how you argue. It's uh, knowledge about logical fallacies. It's knowledge about cognitive biases. It's knowledge of knowledge, meaning epistemology meaning the knowledge of knowledge, and then it's also knowledge about the scientific method. All those combined is actually like the field of critical thinking from my view. Um, there's some, um, in my course, I run through some of the, the more formal uh, definitions of critical thinking, and uh, Moore and, and uh, Parker define critical thinking as the careful application of reason in the determination of whether a claim is true uh, and it's not so much about coming up with claims true or otherwise that constitutes critical thinking it's the evaluation of claims and uh, basically nick tumanelli he says it very clear uh, critical thinking is really talking about the basis of sorting through information uh, there's a saying in the uh, Danish saying is that you you have to sort out shit from cinnamon or dirt from cinnamon, meaning that you you have to sort through if is this actually cinnamon or is it shit or dirt. That, that's great. The the uh, the ability to be less wrong versus the uh, the uh, just seeking what is correct or right. So having a claim and being up for debate and, and willing to explore different strategies and, and be open to criticism. I feel like that the critical thinker is generally uh, frowned upon or having a critical eye is frowned upon in certain discussion groups. So it's really great to have a understanding that it's actually so valuable to, to, to have that ability and awareness to break down your claims and, and be critical of, 
of every single claim, question every single claim. Yeah. yeah. And then um, also a key point here is um, I like to um, separate internal uh, or separate critical thinking in two parts or two halves uh, or one side of the coin and another side of the coin which is internal critical thinking and external critical thinking. Meaning it, in internal critical thinking is the critical thinking that you use upon your own beliefs and yourself and your reasoning and your dialogue, your internal dialogue you have going in your head all the time. And then you have external critical thinking. That's like applying critical thinking to other people's claims. Uh, and often we get or often people get really good at the external part, but they totally suck at the internal part. So basically they learned a way of bashing other people's beliefs using critical thinking, but they did not actually chain any point of their internal dialogue. And that's really not critical thinking from my view. That's not quality thinking. And often this also, um, goes into what is called uh, um, a meta bias or a blind spot bias, which it's called in the literature, meaning that we are very good at uh, evaluating claims from others, but we often are totally bad at uh, evaluating claims from ourselves. And there's actually studies that look at this. So my, the first step should actually be that we should uh, evaluate our own claims. Uh, harder we should so um, um, there's a good um, good quote from uh, Tim Mitchin where he says we must think critically and not only about the ideas of others be hard on your beliefs take them out into the veranda and beat them with a cricket bat so basically my approach to critical thinking is we should be hard on others but even harder on ourselves that's in it. it's just human nature, right? right? To to forget that we should be critical of our own claims. It's just a yeah. lot easier to be to just be good at external critical thinking. Yeah. And in my view, clinical reasoning is a subgroup of critical thinking. You can't do good clinical reasoning without that being good and sound critical thinking. So uh, you could say that clinical reasoning is actually a, a, um, a subfield of critical thinking. It's a very specific type of uh, critical thinking. It's interesting. It's the, so it's a combination of knowing what we know and how we got to those methods of learning. So the epistemology, the maybe questioning of also someone's philosophy, so if someone has a baseline philosophy of, of determinism or biomedical thinking, even if they were to use a biopsychosocial model, they might still be practicing or seeing it through a biomedical lens. And yeah. it takes a lot of critical thinking skills to be able to reflect back, hold a mirror to our own practice and our own claims and see that. Yeah, exactly. And I imagine that's, it's hard for, for everyone and it's a continual process. So what are some of the ways you feel that we could each ourselves be continue to be critical of our own claims and, and not fall for the, the cognitive biases? 
Yeah, so so basically a good step would be be aware that there's something called biases and that we should recognize that biases are a human trait meaning there's not i'm not unbiased and then you're biased and you're wrong but we are all biased all the time and the important part is one recognize that but two what do we do and what process do we do to try to uh, rectify those biases so that's the first step and then the, it also becomes uh, it sort of uh, preempted strike it sort of um, fixes the problem that you believe that other people are biased and that's why they don't uh, adhere to what you're saying because we if we recognize all our bias then we can't ask that question so we are basically if you're saying somebody person is biased then you're actually just saying that they are human nothing else so we are all biased and then what i try is to to ask uh, often we ask uh, confirmatory questions towards ourselves and that's not critical thinking and that's not quality thinking so quality thinking is asking hard questions towards yourself and towards claims but often what people do is due to confirmation bias they only ask confirmatory questions. So they're going after the yes. They're not going after the no. If, if you ask them a question, they will try to, they have an idea about something and then they only ask questions towards one direction. They ask, only ask 10 questions to disprove the claim. But that's not quality thinking. That's standing on one side of the field, totally ignoring the other side. And quality thinking is we should always have uh, both uh, two fields. It's a bit like playing the devil's advocate game. But in my view, the devil's advocate game is best played alone, meaning you should play the devil's advocate towards yourself not so much towards others and then it's basically recognizing that actually you're not well versed in critical thinking so um, Sharples et al he talks about that most of our health and science education are uh, geared towards root learning it's geared towards memorization we try to memorize facts we try to memorize muscles. We try to memorize uh, physiological processes. We try to memorize pathology and diseases. But really, there's not much focus on actually teaching and promoting critical thinking. And actually, asking hard questions at a lecture sometimes actually will not be good for your for your graduation because often and i recognize that that often the guy we are asking hard questions to has to grade us later so another question that uh, that i often ask myself this is is my certitude upon this topic 
a reflection of the validity of the process that I use to gain this knowledge. Or as uh, Dr. Silvernail says, does my feelings of certainty reflect the accuracy of my decision-making process? So basically we should acknowledge that uh, we use different epistemological processes to gain knowledge. And categorically, science as a method is a much better epistemological process in than our own experience or our own um, our own small sphere of contact and there are some errors in clinical practice that we can never escape and i've written multiple articles on my site regarding this plenty of the fundamental errors of, of clinical reasoning that we can be very much blind to and i feel like yeah one of the first kind of skills might be the, the knowledge of the awareness, the acceptance that we can be fallible and we can be wrong. And having that humility, I think is, is perhaps one of the first steps, knowing that how fallible our memory is, knowing how, how, how easily we can become biased and, and fall on our own fallacies. Yeah, totally agree. So, and you could also rephrase it in a, another way, Bates et al. talks about the four stages of um, competency in learning. This is not only clinical practice, but in learning. So basically, the first bottom level is you're unconscious, um, unconsciously incompetent. So this is like, um, yeah, you, you, you're wrong, but you don't know it. Then the next step is you're consciously in, incompetent. So now you know that you actually are wrong. And then the next step is that you're consciously competent. So now you know that you actually are right because you investigated it. And then the last step and the goal of the process is that you become unconsciously competent. This could be applied to all types of learning. It could be applied to our thinking, which is a skill. Critical thinking is a skill, but it could also be um, be applied to something like movement. So basically, if you learn a movement or like in martial arts, a punch, then at first you're not even when you start, you're not actually that much aware that you're doing this type of punch wrong. And then you get taught and then you recognize, oh, I'm doing this wrong. And then you become better with training and, and you know, now you learn how to do it right, but you have to focus on it. You will still do it wrong if you don't, if you don't have the focus. And then the next and last um, uh, level, the highest level is that you actually, now you have learned it so much that it has become a skill that is automated meaning that you do it right all the time. And this is also a problem of, of many uh, CE courses because you often only get to the stage where you're consciously incompetent. So now you get a lot of information and you know, okay, I have to train a lot on this, but you never get, get to the final step where it becomes second nature 
where you actually always, when the patient comes in, you always have the mindset and it, you always greet the patients in a way that you, as quickly as possible, recognize them as a person. You show that you care for them because you genuinely care for them. And you quickly form a solid therapeutic alliance with them. So it becomes second nature. Basically, uh, one point, it's a bit like, okay, if your mother or your child went to a physiotherapist or um, exercise physicist or a doctor or any health professional, how would you treat, have the doctor or physio treat your mother or child? So basically, we should treat all patients like they were our mother or our child or a good friend. Yep, and that's one of the first questions that I would ask if I was to recommend someone, if I was to refer a client or refer a close friend or family member to, to someone, if, if they can treat someone like it was their family member, I think that, mm. that covers a lot of the person-centered practice and the yeah. compassionate practice. And I feel like the, those levels of, from going from the unconscious incompetence, not, not knowing what you don't know, to the unconscious competence, I think there's a, some variable kind of stages and steps there in that process where perhaps we, we need uh, some guidance and support in that first, those first few stages. And there needs to be uh, the choice made by the, I'm thinking a clinician growing in terms of their levels of competence, there mm. needs to be their choice. It needs to be their choice to change. We yeah. need, cause otherwise there's going to exactly. be some conflict there. So yeah. like you said, we need to play devil's advocate to ourselves and maybe clinicians, we need to learn how to criticize our own practice first. Cause yeah. if we just hear others criticize our own practice, we can just push back yeah. and backfire. So it's basically like the stages of um, change, meaning that the first step in actually any skill is the recognizing that we are actually need to train on that skill. So if we do not recognize this, or if we are, I think I'm good enough, that thought will not make you better because you are like, um, you're happy with where you are. Then you will, that will, that will severely limit, in my view, any progress or means of progress. The, the recognition that, shit, that was really a bad, um, that was a bad consultation. That really didn't go in any way how I would have planned it or how I thought it should have went. Um, that is the first step in becoming better. So there's an old saying, which means that you learn more from failure than from success, which is a bit of a paradox because a lot of people on social media are very successful. You could say it that way. So they basically, all patients that come to them, um, get better, which is in part, if you look at reality, most likely bullshit. That doesn't happen. Um, 
but also okay if you're doing everything perfect that in most cases when we look at reality is actually more on one I, what i hear in my mind when people say that that's uh, well actually you are totally ignorant of all the failures that you do and failure can teach us a lot more than actually success because if you're doing everything perfect all the time then you actually there's no no thing you can adjust to become better so i think we should have a much more focus on critical thinking and uh, and reflective thinking as a means to becoming better actually being negative and criticizing yourself and others is a good point in actually becoming better because you learn from the failures not from success and that's such a hard concept to to grasp yeah. there we all have the above average affect the superiority bias where we think that we're we're already good enough and it makes us feel good and it might also align with our worldview of, of us as the as a good clinician we are yeah. fused with that as our identity it's our self-concept and as soon as we see contradictory information and evidence we push back against it and there's that that dissonance as well where we can claim that we are doing something when we're practicing in a certain way and maybe our behavior shows differently so there's yeah. a so there's that cognitive dissonance and and for for those in that space where they are looking to they're ready for an improvement they perhaps just uh, are stepping through those stages of change what are some of the the ways that we can perhaps combat that that dissonance that they might be experiencing or help them out during this process yeah so basically i think a large part of this is reckon, is what i said at san diego pain summit is that i don't think this can be done very effectively on social media i think it's highly unlikely and very hard to make people question themselves through social media i think it's much easier much better uh, one to one or at a course much much easier because you can get a dialogue and you can make uh you can make it it a focus on you trying to help them to them becoming better by avoiding the mistakes that you yourself have made and that's actually one of the opening lines from my course is that actually i try to teach all the errors that i have made so that the the, um, the participants at my course do not need to make the same mistakes as i have done they do not need to go through turmoil or hell that it is to learn all those mistakes so basically i wanted if i want to learn from somebody it's the guy who made the most mistakes not the guy who just everything who does everything right and that could even be if we look at the the four stages of um, of learning or competency in learning actually a very bad teacher would be at the final stage because he would do everything right all the time but he would not have the ability to explain it 
and we actually need somebody who is very, very conscious about what he's doing because he knows if he's not focused on it, he will most likely do it wrong. And that would be a good teacher. Somebody who has made all the mistakes himself and recognized all the mistakes so he can teach them to you. But what I would recommend, and I talked about this also at the San Diego Pain Summit, is uh, most, uh, I will, I'm not perfect, but if we want to try to convert or try to enlighten or try to help our fellow clinicians or colleagues, we should use Socratic questioning. So Socratic questions is questionings that, that sort of force self-reflection. So that should be the first step. Okay, so you think that this is true. How, how did you get to, to the point you are where you know this is true? Why do you know that it is true? What is it based upon? Is there any possibility that what you actually uh, think is true is not true? Is there any different explanation for th this case that this would happen? Could somebody else has caused what happened? So basically ask questions that uh, question um, the claim or the belief. These questions can could, be so helpful for, for everyone, even ourselves, that self-reflection. Yeah. And that could hopefully make it the case that it somewhat avoids the backfire effect, but it's not, not a, a magic bullet. From my experience, if you are so firmly invested in a particular belief, any questioning of that will belief will create um, uh, anger, um, sadly. So if you're totally invested, so the example I use at my, um, at my courses, if you um, are the posture fix guy and you have uh, the whole clinic you have just made um, is the posture fix physio. And you have a web page, you have a big billboard uh, outside the city. The whole um, front of your clinic is the posture fix visual. You have, um, you have multiple ads in newspapers and you have long been known to be the posture fix guy. And you have helped people fixing their posture for the last 10 years then it will be really, really difficult to be objective and look at all the data that does not uh, conform and um, does not adhere to the belief that posture is the, mean, the best means to fixing somebody's back pain, for instance. Because you have put all your money on, on in one slot. And most likely that will always create a backfire effect or create anger, even if you use Socratic questioning. Yeah, the amount of sunk cost in that example, yeah. Yeah. the barriers to change would be really, really high. And I think that's where we perhaps can value clinicians who have perhaps 
gone down those rabbit holes and made those mistakes such as yourself and, and invested their time and, and money in these specific lines of thinking. And then they've changed their mind. Yeah. I think we can value someone changing their mind and commend that flexibility because it must take yeah. so much more energy and effort to combat that, that uncomfortable yeah. feeling of dissonance. Yeah. So basically that's also another point and a point uh, that I maybe do not talk. I need to talk more about it is that I did believe that posture were the quick solution to any pain problem. I did believe that finding movement errors were the fix for any pain problem. I did believe it was about muscular slings and underactive, overactive muscles. And it was about uh, gait and walking wrong in a non-optimum way. I did believe that it was due to lack of strength um, that people had pain because they were weak. Because of course, a strong muscle were much better. I did do all these kind of errors. Um, and luckily for me, I met uh, certain individuals that were were um, good enough and could explain to me that I was actually wrong in a good way, but it was not painful, uh, painless. I remember um, I used the when back in the day when I used the FMS functional movement screen, and then uh, Dr. Johnson uh, Fass did a two or three hour podcast in two parts where he just talked about the FMS and the, the claims and the illogic behind the FMS system and the FMS screen. And I got so angry with him. That was before I, I had befriended him. And I got really, really angry at him because this was something I believed. And I'm curious, what was that process like for you? And, and how did you then move on to accepting and, and dropping the, the, that kind of bias and, and you know, letting go of the rope that was holding the FMS close to who you were and what you were doing? What was that process well, like? I think the first uh, step were, of course, being um, exposed to this type of thinking. Then looking starting to ask reflective questions towards myself and then trying to ask um, questions that did not uh, confirm my thought process. So, okay, basically, if I have learned that, that there are so many errors that we can do in gait, and then I started, I had a, a clinical teacher who said, well, you should train your clinical eye, which is a good thing. So you should look at people all the time. When you're shopping, you should look at people, how they walk, how they stand, how they move, how their posture is. So I started really training my clinical eye, looking at gait. Uh, and then I came to the conclusion that everybody is wrong. Everybody is walking wrongly, not in a good way. And then after a while, I thought, well, they are walking around wrongly, but they don't seem to have any problems. And if everybody's wrong, then that doesn't really fit. 
nobody is walking correctly, perfectly. And using the biomedical model and the biomechanical model and the biomechanical view, then everybody should in, be in pain and they are not. So there must be some problem with the model. And then, then I started to look into the variability of human movement, which it often is totally ignored. We try to find an error and that error in many cases, and actually in most cases, is just a normal human variation. So one paper I read talked about human movement is as unique as our fingerprints. So we move differently all the time and we even move differently um, and asymmetrically in our limbs. So there will be asymmetrical differences between left and right leg. So, uh, so basically it was the recognition that, well, actually we, everybody can't be wrong. Everybody can't be broken. Then it's actually me that's wrong because the model does not explain. And a good, um, a good quote is that a good model or theory should not only explain, it should also predict. And many of the models we have or theories we have in physiotherapy particularly, they explain a lot, but they do not predict. And when we test them, they fail miserably. They fail, oh, they can't fail harder. That's such a good question. The, if, the, the use of the model and the, the way of thinking, the methodology that people use and, and asking them perhaps if it can predict future injury or future pains. And, and if, if people aren't perhaps aligning themselves correctly or aren't activating the right muscles, then why aren't they in deteriorating? Why aren't they in pain? Why aren't they injurious? And you had that self-reflection, that moment, and a, perhaps a bit of a expectancy violation or the, the, your theory was, was, was crashed as soon as you realized, you came to that realization yourself. Yeah. So you had to make yeah. that time and, and have that thought experiment yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I think we, are, as clinicians, we are lured into this even more because um, as Derek uh, Griffin says, we often only see people with problems and pain. We never see people with problems and without pain, which is basically one of the things I talked about in um, this article I wrote, why most people uh, are wrong about pain, which is basically we only see the people with pain and the problem, but we totally uh, miss out the, the possibility that you can have a problem without pain. And that's basically one of my um, quick shortcuts when I get a new diagnosis and a new patient. That's okay. To what degree can you have this diagnosis with the symptoms and do they correlate? And often they don't. Very often. I've had a very hard time finding something that 100% correlate with uh, pain. Even acute injuries fractures do not 100% correlate or amputations do not correlate 100% with pain 
because you can have them and we have studies show this without such a good question to ask i wanted to to ask the final question for you lars respecting your time what based on what we've been discussing of the the value of critical thinking and hopefully we're we're helping uh, others who are ready for an ex- the enlightened change, as, as you said, the the ability to to practice in a more person-centered way, as opposed to going through a biomedical or biomechanical lens. What do you see as the future of of rehab, of physiotherapy, of pain management? So I think first, and this is basically the first step, should be done all already at the university level is that we should be spoon-fed, not the biomedical model, but we should be spoon-fed from, well, our clinical birth, uh, the the idea about uh, plausibility, uncertainty, and complexity. So the idea that we should be certain about a a topic or a diagnosis is problematic because what we see in the clinic is highly uncertain and medical practice is about uncertainty. And then it's also about complexity. And often we are taught we should be certain about the diagnosis and and the solution is always simple. And if we're dealing with people, then it's never simple. If you're dealing with humans, it's complex like we talked about. It's not knee pain. It's not Peter with knee pain and John with knee pain. They could be totally different. And your approach towards those two persons with pain should be totally different. Um, So basically, I have multiple steps in how the future of pain management should look. Um, So one, one first step could be that we should, we should target and recognize in our practice that pain is not something in the body, but it is an experience. So instead of looking at the knee where the person sitting in front of you have pain, we should look upon the person. So instead of looking down at the knee for 20 minutes doing all sorts of tests, we should look up and recognize that pain is an experience. Um, so there's a quote from a famous uh, university professor who was actually the primary uh, professor teaching anatomy for a lot of uh, physios in Denmark. It's still his textbook that is being used to teach anatomy at university. There's a, a quote in the text, the primary textbook. It says, it is fundamental to the body's self protection ability that pain begins before reaching the breaking point without the painful experience there's no possibility of keeping the body and tissue intact and whole so basically pain could be viewed as uh, something to motivate us something to reduce threat something to change behavior um, and if we could just recognize that pain is a, a um, self-protection uh, motivator uh, and an experience, we would have come a long way. 
um, that could be that could be a what do you call a, a, the first rule of uh, how to better pain management for the future. Then at the, my San Diego Pain Summit lecture, which actually were the to the topic of my lecture were uh, the future of pain management. Uh, I talked about a shopping list approach to future better future uh, pain management care or pain rehabilitation. And it, it basically stated that future pain management should be biopsychosocial and it should be multifactorial, meaning that there are multiple factors influencing the, um, the painful experience and they could be divided into biological, psychological and social factors or domains. Uh, then we should uh, also, we could learn a lot and can better our practice a lot if we look at the, uh, the neurophysiological and behavioral consequences of pain. Then of course our practice should also be patient-centered as you said yourself, and, but it should also be process-oriented, uh, meaning that we run through a process and we use a consistent clinical reasoning process in our practice. So basically, I normally use a sort of uh, stepwise process. If I get a person with a new diagnosis, I look at the research about the diagnosis. I ask critical questions about this diagnosis. I try to find out, well, what is the symptoms of the diagnosis and how can they differ? And what is uh, the etiology of the diagnosis, meaning what is the main uh, cause or main problem? With pain, we know that there's not one main problem, but with other diseases, it could be a systematic disease or um, yeah, something um, other. And then uh, future, uh, future, better future pain management should be interactor oriented, meaning we are interacting with another person. We're not operating another person. A lot of the dry needling acupuncture manual therapy is by default uh, or um, operator oriented, meaning we are doing something to another person. We are never doing something to another person. We are interacting with another living human being. And then the future, uh, and this is particular towards our clinical reasoning process, it should be analytical. It should not be um, automated, meaning um, that we should have a stepwise process and it should be uh, analytical. We should analyze the information. We should analyze um, the, what the patient is saying. We should do a thorough uh, multifactorial pain analysis. Um, so the process is the same, but it differs because we use an analytical approach, not an automated approach. The problem with this idea is that in many cases, our health system is, is forcing us into using an automated approach. Because we have, if you have no, um, you have no time to prepare yourself and you only have 30 minutes to a patient and you have 30 minute slots and you have 10 patients a day. This will be very, very hard in using an analytical approach. 
with the, this uh, level or type of healthcare facility because you will get it requires a lot of more cognitive power to use our analytical approach and if you have 10, 10 uh, patients or people coming in every day have our slots you will be forced to automate and that's a problem of our healthcare system if I could drop my mic right now, I would, but this is a really expensive mic. So that was amazing. Lars, that was great. It covered some really, really great topics. And if I could quickly summarize what I took from that, the, the future of, of pain management, it would be the ability to see the experience of pain as a complex system, the ability to be comfortable with the uncertainty involved in treating a human as opposed to treating a body part, maybe. Yeah. Our language, when we talk about certain uh, cases, we could use more about the person and their experience versus focusing on the symptoms or the location of the pain. I think that might mm. be a first step towards that process. Yeah. And then going through the, going into a, an interactor mindset versus a operator and I must criticize exercise professionals can be just as much an operator, a fixer. As, mm. as any manual therapist, I would say, I would argue, we, could, yeah. we should be critical yeah. of, of exercise um, at, at the same time. And then, yeah, yeah like you said, if, if we're looking at uh, perhaps running a business, we might question the systems that we have if we are being too, too automated yeah. in, in our process. And if we can perhaps be more person-centered and allow for that in the clinical environment, to allow for yeah. that time to be uh, individualized and, and analyze the, our way of, of approaching each case as opposed to trying to lump all knee pain in one section, lump all hamstring strains in one section and treat them all the same. We need to treat the person and yeah. their goals and their experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's been also, an absolute, yes, go please, add on. Also focus upon well, to my point, I would focus more upon quality than quantity and more about um, the quality of the interaction. So basically, if you do what I feel, or in my opinion and my firm belief, um, is that if you do a high quality treatment, that one individual becomes the best uh, mouth to mouth uh, advertising agent that you can have and a severely limiting factor um, and a problem is um, people think that if you come for 10 years and you do one hour a session that's a good patient yeah that's good for the wallet but that's not really good for the advertising uh, part and time is for most people, a limiting factor, meaning that they would rather pay much more to get help in shorter time than pay less and get to a physiotherapist for five years. There's perhaps some uh, misconceptions of what good quality healthcare is in the layperson's point yeah. of view. If, if they yeah. can just give the responsibility to someone every week, for the rest of their life and that's their fix and they see that as yeah. a as a positive maybe we need to reframe yeah. what it means to to be successful in, yeah. in our healthcare yeah 
Lars, that was amazing. I really appreciate your topics and your time and your expertise. I wanted to, to dive into any of your future endeavors, courses, where can people contact you and find you? What's on the agenda? So they can find me. Uh, I will be doing, I think it's 10 to 12 seminars, uh, mostly around Europe, but also I will hopefully be coming down under um, sooner than later. And uh, they can find my information and my articles, um, both uh, on my uh, private Facebook uh, page. They can follow me there or they can uh, contact me through Facebook and they can read my articles uh, on, my, um, on my homepage, which is uh, LarsAvermarie.com. And I post a lot of information and a lot of articles regarding pain and critical thinking, and, but also about my courses and where I'm at the next year. Yeah. Awesome, Lars. Definitely one to follow for our listeners. And you've definitely taken over my newsfeed from, from cats and photos of people's breakfast to <laughs> some really juicy debates. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all you do, Lars. And until next time, and hopefully see you down under sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully.